Welcome to the BMJ podcast. I'm Helen MacDonald. And I'm Duncan Jarvis. We're at Evidence Live, a conference that we, the BMJ, and the Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine at Oxford University run. The aim of the conference is to look at the E in EBM, evidence. How is it created, how is it synthesised, and ultimately, how it's used. In this particular podcast, we're talking to two of the most influential characters in the world of evidence, Ian Chalmers and Doug Altman. Ian is known for his work with the Cochrane Collaboration, and Doug is a medical statistician. Um, Ian, Doug, hi, can you introduce yourselves? My name's Ian Chalmers, I work for the James Lind Initiative. I'm Doug Altman, I'm a statistician and I uh, lead the Equator Network. It's wonderful to have both of you in one place, um, two big figures in evidence-based medicine who've thought about a lot of the difficulties and been involved in a lot of the successes over recent decades. Um, And I'm interested in talking to you on the theme of research waste and preventing it. So maybe the the way to start would be, in fact, to start um, as a member of the public. If, as a member of the public, um, someone came up to you and said, Do you think it would be a good idea if before researchers embarked on new research, they actually took trouble to find out systematically what is already known? Then um, people would ask, well, why are you asking a question with such an obvious answer? Why, Why is there any sort of point in asking the question? Of course they should find out what's known already. And then um, if they, a further question was asked, do you think that researchers, having done um, pretty good research, should publish the results of their research and in that that way uh, fulfill their implied obligation to the patients who help them do the research, it's often patients, um, should publish the results? Well, there again, people would say that's a very curious question. Of course they should. They have a moral obligation to publish the results. Uh, and yet we know that half of the results of uh, clinical trials, um, ha- the results of half clinical trials don't get published. It's a betrayal of implied trust um, of patients who participate in those trials. And then if you ask, well, if in the reports of those studies um, they don't actually report things in a way which makes them um, straightforward to understand and to use, is that acceptable? No, of course it isn't acceptable. So in all of these ways, there are, um, um, there's a mismatch between what the research world is doing uh, and what the users of research, be they patients, the public in general, other researchers, actually need. It's only by the public becoming angry about uh, the waste of resources, which results from people ignoring these principles, Um, it's only by their anger and influence that things are going to change. Left to um, their own devices, uh, the research community is not going to move fast enough. So tell us about some more of the things that people might feel angry about. You mentioned that about 50% of trials go unpublished. What other examples are there? What's the scale of waste? Well, 50% is a very high proportion of a very large number. So it's, um, it's, it's really important. And uh, one of the things that's been done in Oxford 
uh, by our colleagues is first of all to look at the proportion of the trials initiated in Oxford that actually get reported. And actually compared with the overall average, Oxford is not too bad. But what one really needs to know is who are the culprits? Who are the, if the average, I think that it's something like um, 20 or 25 percent of Oxford trials studied hadn't yet been reported when they should have been. That's the average, but who within that average, um, who within the, uh, um, uh, all of those trials, there were a couple of hundred of them as far as I remember, who are the culprits and what are their excuses? It seems like the whole research industry, as it were, has almost lost its way. It's now not there to better the public good. It's almost job creation for researchers, if that is the scale of, of the waste that's going on. I, I'm going to hand over to um, Doug at this point. That, and the reason for that is that he wrote an extremely um, widely cited paper, The Scandal of Poor Research. Medical Research. Medical yeah. Research. I wrote that editorial in the BMJ in 1994 in, in a mood of anger. So it was my anger at seeing wasted opportunities, a different sort of waste, so in, in that what was being published, I mean, Ian has talked about many studies not being published. My concern initially, at least, was far more about the poor quality of the way the research that was published uh, was described and, and I, I saw, uh, and done. So I saw wide use of inappropriate methods or inappropriate use of the right methods, um, ambiguity, inappropriate interpretation of findings. And at this point, before I forget, I want to stress something. Ian has been discussing clinical trials, randomized trials in essence. Uh, most of the medical literature is not randomized trials. and. While it's obvious that trials have the biggest influence on, on treatment of patients, there are many clinical decisions that don't relate to treatment. Diagnosis, prognosis, for example. Um, there is a lot of epidemiological research which links in with clinical studies but provides uh, information about uh, risks associated with certain exposures. And it's probable, I don't have clear evidence. It's probable that all the deficiencies that have been documented and some of which Ian has touched on for trials, that those deficiencies are even greater when we move into other parts of the medical research literature. Can you mention three things, Doug, that mm. in terms of how things might be reported that or making a justification for these are the, these are the three really important things that you need to be able to get when you read through a paper. Just talk readers, talk listeners through that. Three high-level principles for me for research publications are that they should not mislead, which in essence means they should be an honest reflection of, of what was done and what was found. Secondly, that the, uh, the study, from the information that's provided, it ought to be possible in principle, although may never happen, that someone could repeat that study in their own setting. And then thirdly, the methods and the results should be presented in enough detail that when 
as quite often happens, in the future someone comes along, maybe some years later, wishes to do a systematic review of the literature, and they find this study, and they say, well, hang on, how did they, how did they actually do that? Or, um, and you've been and involved in the Equator Network, which is a project looking at <coughs> improving that step, that, tran that clarity of, yes. of presentation. To just tell people briefly who may not be familiar with, with that, what type of things you produce or what resources you have. Well, I, I think I, my, my starting point would be that um, <clears throat> over years, uh, some few decades, it, it, it became clear that, that many research papers didn't meet the criteria. I just said they weren't. They were being published, but the studies were not being published in a useful or, or, or usable way. And uh, so many reporting guidelines were produced or have been produced over the last uh, 20, 20 years. Um, <clears throat> to help researchers know what is the core information that they ought to include in, in when they write their results up for a journal publication. And whilst these were quite successful in one sense, uh, they didn't really have much impact because it was a very passive activity to publish a, a guideline. And so we set up the Equator Network uh, to try to raise the profile and, and be more proactive in trying to get people to be aware of and adhere to these uh, guidelines. And, and to some extent, I think we've been very successful with both um, journals, uh, policies to, to, to support what we do, many research funders as well. But these are not mandatory and it's very hard still to, to argue that in the 20 years or more since I complained about bad quality uh, research, I'm afraid uh, reporting is still is improving very slowly and it's simply unacceptable. I think but you've got bigger hopes <coughs> for the future. Uh, you, you, you see that potentially well, a role for Equator in, in improving uh, the quality of the research itself rather than just simply yes, we, of we, the sure, reporting. Sure. The, I, I think ultimately what we want is better quality research. I, as I said earlier, probably less research, but better research focused on things that we actually need the answers to and, and reported in, 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 in an optimal way. And what we do is to try to push that agenda and we will give more attention going forward to helping people to identify, well, to, to do better quality studies. I mean, the, the reality is that most of the time or much of the time, researchers wish the results to go in a particular direction. Very often research is driven by, uh, it's not isolated, it's part of a whole program of work by someone who's interested in a particular theme and as it goes on, they, 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 their ideas firm up on, on what they think that is really going on. They don't want to publish a study that seems to negate the stuff they've already published. And consciously or subconsciously, they may choose to present their results in a way that, that isn't dispassionate, shall we say. Mm -hmm. And research, in principle, should be dispassionate. And uh, one is seeking the truth. A huge change has happened though over the last 30, 20 to 30 years globally, certainly in the UK. When I started and Ian, uh, researchers were employed and their employment was not conditional on getting grants and it wasn't conditional on the results of the research they did. 
Now, most researchers are on short-term funding. They have to get grants. They, you know, if you're researching a line, some particular topic, and, and you demonstrate that actually that topic, you know, that, that idea doesn't work, you know, you come to a dead end. And, and you can't get more money for that. You have to find something else to do. And that's, that's a challenge. Uh, you can see why, again, not necessarily deliberately, but potentially subconsciously, you would seek to extend the life of your idea beyond where you ought to by choosing to disregard some of the results and, and not others. And the other thing I would say is, which is regrettable, I think much of the research is done by people who are not full-time researchers and don't have adequate training in, in how to do good research. And further, in, in the issues of what is proper research conduct, which includes the issue which Ian was talking about, publishing your research and publishing it in, a, in an honest way. Um, we, I mean, this figure of 85% of research money being wasted uh, covers a whole host of things. And it's interesting that uh, <clears throat> in the 1994 article, which we were just discussing, I, I said we needed less research, but better research. And I, and I still hold to that. What we have seen in the last 23 years is a vast increase in the amount of research and no clear evidence that it's getting better. So um, the problems of non-publication even, which is a really black and white issue, either the study results are published or they are not, um, that's been known for decades and, and it remains a major problem. And indeed there is a paradox that on the one hand researchers are under a lot of pressure to publish and in some instances to publish a certain number of papers in order to advance their career. But on the other hand, half of the trials that are done are not published. Uh, there, there's a very peculiar, and I don't think there's been, or I'm unaware of, of investigation into how that happens. Are these two different groups of people behaving um, in different ways, or is it the same people behaving in rather paradoxical way for parts of what they do and, and other parts doing something completely different? And Ian may know something, but no, I, I... I agree. I, I don't have any evidence to explain a conundrum. It is, it is baffling. Ian, tell us a bit about rewards work. The, the way that um, the reward uh, initiative started, I think it's probably true to say, is um, came from the recognition that there was this mismatch between what researchers were doing and what patients might find useful, patients, their families, uh, and the health professionals to whom they um, come for, for help. And that seemed to be um, a very substantial source of waste. Um, why wouldn't you try to find out what, what were the important questions facing patients and clinicians at the clinical coalface, if we can put it that way? They're trying to make uh, decisions informed by reliable research, and they can't actually find any research which is ad addressing the questions which they are facing. There was um, an awful lot of uh, ac research activity, but a lot of it really just didn't um, address the uh, issues that um, patients and clinicians were worried about. And that led us to set up the um, James Lind Alliance, which I referred to um, uh, earlier. But then there was a question of, well, 
that there seems to be that's just one source of waste, addressing the wrong questions, using the wrong outcome measures. But in fact, there's an awful lot of other um, um, sources of waste. And that's the, what led um, Paul, Ga uh, Paul Glasio and I to write this paper in The Lancet in 2009, where we made this um, estimate that over 85% of the investment in research was being wasted, which was a pretty shocking realization to us. And we were a bit surprised that no one challenged it because um, it was actually quite difficult to um, um, find any evidence which would be reassuring that that wasn't as much of a problem as it seemed, as we were claiming it was. I think that one of the things that I feel particularly glad about was that the National Institute of Health Research, which is, if you like, the NHS's research arm, responded to the challenge presented by this um, article both very rapidly and very practically. It started in to introduce measures, if they hadn't already been introduced, um, that would reduce waste and increase value of research. And, um, and what were those measures? Things like um, don't apply for um, funds to do additional primary research if you haven't actually done systematic reviews of what's known already. Um, make sure that you um, uh, register the trial um, um, before you start recruiting to it. Make sure that you publish it in full. Um, and there were a variety of ways in, in which they made these and other sensible um, um, value-improving um, interventions um, happen. So, for example, they would uh, hold back 10% um, or 15% of the grant until uh, the researchers had actually submitted a, um, a full report of their study. They created their own journal, uh, Health Technology, um, uh, so that they had a, um, a place where full publication could be made. So um, NIHR recently was awarded an international prize for the extent to which it had taken steps to reduce waste. Um, it's now firmly on the agenda, and one of the things which I feel very proud of as a Brit is that um, the um, uh, way that people working on this agenda within uh, NIHR actually um, were seen by other research funders in other countries to be leading in this and were willing to work on a, researchers, a research funders forum to um, agree principles that should be addressed uh, by all research funders. And that was, that's a very heartening thing to have uh, seen happen. So I think um, if I look back at my first uh, paper was published in the Lancet in 1972, I think <clears throat> the paper that Paul Glasgow and I um, published in the same journal in 2009 is the only example I have where I think I can actually say that the paper had an effect. Um, it does seem to have had an effect and now uh, the issue of research waste is undoubtedly on the agenda. No one wants to be accused of wasting what in essence are always public resources. What you've talked there about, you know, the, the steps that um, the NIHR uh, has done to reduce research waste. They seem so sensible and <laughs> relatively easy. 
Why did it take till 2009 and you writing that for, for them to do that? And why haven't all funders done that? Um, again, I'd, I'd look at the, this is a glass half full, half empty. I'd look at the fact that there are several funders now from around the world who are looking at it now, and that's wonderful. Mm. Um, maybe one had to wait for a generation of people who felt that they could be cavalier about this to die. <laughs> Um, and that now there are people uh, who are um, in charge and uh, able to support this type of um, self-audit um, who realize that because the public has taken increasing interest in, in medical research, they're not going to be able to get away with it as easily as they might have been 30 years ago. I don't know. That's a guess. And I don't know even uh, anyone who's seriously studying it. It mm. certainly deserves study. For example, we know very little um, uh, in formal terms about why people don't submit um, um, uh, studies for, uh, for publication. Mm. You know, sometimes there's an obvious reason that the principal investigator died. So um, it's understandable that, you know, trying to work out from his mm. hard drive which of the key files to um, mm. enable the thing to be written up and submitted. Uh, but those are rare. We just don't know enough about why it is that, and we now know particularly academics, don't publish stuff. I got an email yesterday, I think, from the AAAS um, talking about how the Trump administration is mm. you know, going to destroy science mm. and you know, trying to mobilize researchers and people who care about it to speak out and, and change that. Um, but then you think, you know, if so much of that money is wasted, mm. anyway, you, you know, if you got your house in order, you would be protecting yourself from that mm -hmm. kind, of, kind of attack. I, I, do, I do wonder, though, whether the, the, there is antipathy to the word waste. I mean, and, and obviously the reverse of waste is in some sense value for money or, you know, I think we should emphasise more trying to improve the value of the research that's done and the value, the, the way that the, the, the research spend is, 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 is distributed. And whilst I don't disagree with the, with the concept of waste, you know, it's often better to push a positive idea than a negative one. That's why the National Institute of Health Research refers to its initiative as um, adding value exactly. in research, which is fine. Um, I think one of the reasons that the paper that we co-authored in 2009 actually did get noticed was that it mm. had the word waste uh, in the title. Yeah. And I think that there are um, sometimes where it's appropriate to emphasize that part of it for some audiences or readerships, um, sometimes there aren't. But let's take, for example, in going back to your question, which mentions Trump, um, people will see a danger, I'm quite certain, if uh, um, Trump starts to say, well, actually, 85% of research is wasted, so we've mm. got lots of scope for cutting. Well, that's obviously not um, taken at its face value a sensible idea but the Joe Biden previous vice president when he found out that 50% of controlled trials weren't being published he said that's not good enough and if I find out um, if I find that that um, figure is confirmed it was published by stats, stats I think um, 
then we're going to question the people who are receiving federal grants to do research to explain mm. themselves. So I think there has to be two things going on at the same time. One has to oppose a sort of blanket, um, uh, as perhaps uh, Trump might wish to um, propose, um, uh, ditching of, of research. But there is a responsibility on the research community to do a better job of not only showing that it's aware of this problem, but that it's trying to do something about it. And lots more could be done than is currently being done uh, to show that. It's quite clear that there must be good value for money in initiatives designed to reduce waste. And yet many organisations or groups uh, struggle to persuade funders to put any money into these initiatives. Uh, so I'm thinking of the Reward Initiative uh, Alliance, uh, Reward Alliance that Ian has been talking about, the Equator Network. There's the Comet Initiative, which also received a recent award for its, its work. Uh, last year, David Mower, uh, a Canadian uh, researcher, and I published a paper where we argued that uh, the research funders should put an incredibly modest 0.1% of their total spend into funding initiatives that are designed to improve the value of research across the whole of medical areas and globally as well. At the moment, though, we, we struggle to persuade funders to put money into helping them spend their money better. It's crazy, but the, there's just much more willingness of research funders to fund more novel research. I use the word novel in, in inverted commas, which you can't see. Um, um, in, in the belief somehow that, that exploring new things is, is a better way of spending money than actually trying to make sure that what we're already doing, we're doing better. Doug and Ian talked about the Reward Alliance and the Equator Network, and you can find links in the podcast text to those. Ian also mentioned an audit of Oxford University's research publication rates. That's been published in the article Getting Our House in Order in BMJ Open. Again, we've linked from the podcast text. Check out our podcast feed on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. There you'll find more from the conference. This is the seventh year of Evidence Live, and if evidence is your thing, then have a look at our archive on SoundCloud. Just search for BMJ Talk Medicine. There you'll be able to find interviews from all these previous years. Thanks for listening. Bye.